July 1865, London. A small woman hurries up the stairs of a grand London house, wrinkling her nose at the rancid smell that greets her. As she reaches the top of the staircase, she pauses in a nearby room. It's sparse. Wooden floors are cool and shaded, a welcome refreshment from the raging heat wave burning the streets of the city. The woman carefully reaches into her apron pocket and takes out a tissue and a rusty set of keys. With the tissue firmly pressed against her nose, she slots a large key into the door and twists it open. There, laying on the bed in front of her, is the dead body of Dr. James Barry. The sight doesn't scare or trouble the woman. She's been expecting it. Today, her job is to clean the body and lay it out in preparation for its burial. She quickly sets to work undressing the recognizable body of the once celebrated surgeon as his characteristically small and delicate limbs lie motionless in a tired, baggy suit. Her eyes perhaps move towards the glittering metals that twinkle from his desk, the vibrant collection of exotic artifacts cluttering the large room, the opened medical books and journals filled with pages of scrawled writing. The room is bursting with evidence of Dr. James Barry's colorful, accomplished, and wildly successful life as one of Britain's most well-respected surgeons. However, as the woman unbuttons Barry's loose shirt to begin cleaning the body, she feels her heart stutter in shock. Beneath the shirt is a female's chest. Two white breasts blatantly perch on top of the ribcage. The skin is smooth and clear from any hair and the shoulders are slender and narrow. Overcome with curiosity, the woman undresses Barry further loosening his belt and peeling away the trousers. Crawling from Barry's pelvis to mid-stomach are thick, white-purple lines. Their bumpy texture and scar-like quality give the impression that the skin is sagging in places. The woman runs her hand gently over the lines and instantly realizes that they are, without a doubt, stretch marks from a previous pregnancy. Their length and quantity suggest that the pregnancy was carried to its full term. The woman stares in disbelief, laying on the bed in front of her, where the deceased Dr. Barry is supposed to be, is the body of an elderly woman dressed in man's clothing. She perhaps thinks that the body's been replaced, maybe someone's sick idea of a dark joke. But as she stares at the figure's familiar cropped curly red hair, watery blue eyes, long hooked nose, and delicately pinched cheekbones, she knows that it's the body of the famous surgeon. Her discovery means that somehow, during a time when women aren't even allowed to study, let alone practice medicine, the British Army's most senior surgeon was female. But how did Dr. Barry fool patients, colleagues, and prestigious institutions for over 50 years? Why did this talented woman hide behind the guise of a man for most of her adult life? And what, if any, revolutionary changes did her subterfuge kickstart for women in the 19th century? 
At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Dr. James Barry, a woman who masqueraded as a man for 57 years. It's about a talented young girl who refused to be denied opportunities due to her sex. A dangerous and courageous scheme designed to fool some of Britain's most prestigious institutions. It's about the fearless, revolutionary life led by Dr. James Barry as he rose to become the British Army's most senior surgeon. The shocking, unbelievable discovery caused by his death and the legacy his rebellious life leaves for the future of medicine. I'm Estefania Haigman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Cork, Ireland. Dr. James Barry is born Margaret Ann Bulkley in Ireland, 1789. Her childhood is one of hardship and poverty. By the time she's a teenager, her father is almost completely absent, spending his time between debtor's prison or hiding from creditors who encircle him like vultures. Her older brother is similarly neglectful. He's chosen to shirk any familial duties he might inherit and marry into wealth, leaving his mother and sister to suffer alone. Although Margaret Ann is a highly intelligent child, as a girl, she's denied the opportunity of free education. And seeing as her mother can barely afford to feed the family, the idea of paying a tutor or governess for something as luxurious as learning is almost laughable. So discarded library books, newspapers, and political pamphlets become the only teachers of this keen, clever girl. But despite her difficult circumstances, Margaret Ann refuses to be deterred from her strong-willed dreams. She often writes to her brother of her ambitious plans, proclaiming on one occasion, If I were not a girl, I would be a soldier. However, it's possible that an event occurs when she's just 13 that threatens to destroy Margaret Ann's wild dreams. Although reports cannot confirm it as a fact, many agree on the probability that Margaret Ann is sexually assaulted by her uncle when she's a young teenager and is left pregnant with his child. 
Without the options of contraception or safe medical interventions, the young girl is forced to carry the growing baby in her small, youthful body. Reports speculate that in 1803, Margaret Ann is cruelly ripped from childhood to become a mother. She's just 14 years old. Perhaps due to the shame of this young, incestuous pregnancy, Margaret Ann's mother disguises the baby as her own and announces that she's been blessed with a second daughter. But although this story may help to preserve the Bulkleys' reputation, another mouth to feed does them no financial favors. Margaret Ann's mother can think of just one person to save them from the depths of poverty. Her famous, wealthy, but estranged brother, James Barry. The date is now 1804, and Margaret Ann excitedly skips up the steps to a tall, dilapidated house in Little Castle Street, London, with her mother nervously hovering at her side. The two women are here today to meet with the acclaimed artist James Barry, a man celebrated across Europe and Britain for his pioneering paintings and lavish lifestyle. He rubs shoulders with leading liberals, radical authors, politicians, intellectuals, and is heralded as a great influencer for the romantic movement of art. The two women hope he might be as generous as he is talented and offer them a financial lifeline from their dreadful situation. But luck isn't on their side today, and neither the skinny figures of his relatives or obvious brains of Margaret Ann warm James Barry's heart. Claiming to be in financial trouble himself after losing his Royal Academy professorship, he throws the desperate women from his house empty-handed, destroying their last hope of financial freedom. However, the Bulkley women endure just two more years of poverty until the tides miraculously turn in their favor. In 1806, news of James Barry's premature death is accompanied by a very welcomed surprise. With no wife or next of kin, James Barry has left much of his fortune to the Bulkley women. It's a sizable inheritance that will certainly cover the cost of an education for Margaret Ann and release the women from their impending destitution. But better still, he supplied them with the names and addresses of several of his most influential friends who are happy to tutor the young girl. These two gifts from James Barry are life-changing for the Bulkley women. They provide unimaginable hope and opportunities for the talented, eager Margaret Ann. And so, age 16, her life finally begins. The teenager is tutored by the accomplished Dr. Edward Fryer and the radically liberal Venezuelan, General Francisco Miranda. She's exposed to a world she could never have even imagined as she flies through lessons in Latin, Greek, medicine, science, literature, even the politics of revolutionaries who are quickly shaping the globe. Her talent is evident for anyone to see and her tutors glow with pride at her insatiable hunger for knowledge. But despite this intellectual thirst, the only realistic careers for educated women are tutors or governesses. And Margaret Ann is far too ambitious to accept these humble positions. So the two men, their talented student and her mother, devise a radical and dangerous plan. Margaret Ann is to train to become a doctor. 
As women aren't yet allowed to study or practice medicine, Margaret Ann undergoes several changes to fulfill her dream. Her thick red hair is cut into a messy crop. Her small breasts are tightly bound to her chest. Her limited wardrobe of dresses and skirts is replaced with shirts, pants, and ties, and of course, her name is changed. Perhaps in homage to her unlikely benefactor, the name Margaret Ann is replaced with James Barry. As soon as the daring plan is finalized and Margaret Ann's disguise complete, she sends an application to study medicine to the University of Edinburgh and seals her life of deception. December 14th, 1808. A solicitor sits in his cold, damp office in Ireland, carefully reading the contents of a messily scrawled letter. The letter informs him of a young man's safe passage from Ireland to Edinburgh. It states, It was very useful for Mrs. Bulkley, my aunt, to have a gentleman to take care of her on board ship. It then requests that all mail addressed to a Margaret Ann be redirected to the young man's aunt, Mrs. Bulkley. The letter is signed by a Mr. James Barry. Although the solicitor is undoubtedly aware of the plan that's transformed Margaret Ann into James Barry, perhaps for his own clarity or to avoid future confusion, he scribbles on the back of the envelope, Miss Bulkley, 14th December. This rushed inscription is the last ever trace of the existence of Margaret Ann Bulkley. She must now leave behind her old life and enter into a new one as a man by the name of James Barry. In December, 1808, James Barry begins his studies at the renowned University of Edinburgh as a medical and literary student but his strange physical appearance immediately begs attention. Unlike his tall, muscular peers whose faces are peppered with beards and mustaches, their strong limbs carrying them confidently around campus, Barry is small and extremely feminine looking. He reaches just five feet in height. His shoulders are slender and narrow and his angular, delicate face is entirely clear from any stubble or facial hair. His pinched cheekbones slide at sharp angles down his long, soft face, and his cropped red hair accentuates a set of twinkling blue eyes in between a hooked nose. With his girlish demeanor and high-pitched voice, many believe Barry to be a prepubescent boy, perhaps some sort of child prodigy or young genius. This outcome is, after all, easier for many of the male students and professors to swallow than the humbling truth that their talented peer is in fact a woman. Barry is an excellent student and excels at his numerous modules, completing courses in anatomy, surgery, chemistry, botany, medical theory, and the history of pharmacy. If he struggles with the new demands of this all-male environment or in upholding the pretense of his sex, he doesn't show it and quietly progresses through the years. But Barry never forgets his modest origins as a child of the oppressed sex. His final year dissertation is a blatant display of the sympathies he still feels towards the gender of his birth, as he chooses to write about the physical danger and damage society forces women to undergo by wearing corsets. Having successfully completed his medical studies in 1812, Barry enrolls at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital in London, where he endures grueling surgical training. In 
The hospital is a dirty, chaotic, masculine playground. Unwashed, unattended patients lay in hallways for days at a time. Operations are carried out in front of visitors. A whipping post haunts the hospital grounds and it's customary for training doctors to drink two pints of beer each day on the premises. It's likely that the men who work here believe no woman would ever have a chance surviving the rough, intense lifestyle of this hospital. But in the same way Barry rebelliously completed his studies at Edinburgh University, he endures the harsh environment of St. Thomas's and is welcomed into the Royal College of Surgeons in July, 1813. Now, his adventurous life of exotic traveling and medical success can begin. 1816, Cape Town, South Africa. James Barry steps off a large ship belonging to the British Army and looks around curiously at the wild plains he'll call home for the next 10 years. Grand white houses cast shadows over the red, dusty streets. Unruly mountains stretch lazily into the clear blue sky. The colossal sun scorches the necks of unprepared foreigners and fierce reminders of the British rule keep guard of the rugged landscape. Barry has recently joined the British Army as a surgeon, where he's been posted to Cape Town, a successful and strategic colony in Britain's expanding empire. Although he's still a newly trained junior doctor, this army position provides him with opportunities a British hospital could never offer. He rises quickly through the ranks, making lasting impressions on soldiers, officers, patients, and locals. Perhaps in an attempt to appear more masculine and free himself of the nickname locals taunt him with, the Little Maiden, Barry constructs a fearsome reputation for himself. He throws medicine bottles in a rage, shouts at mistaken doctors, humiliates them in front of their peers, and even threatens physical beatings as punishment for incompetence or rudeness. In response to one soldier's foolish remark that Barry looks feminine, he lashes him across the face with a whip. So over time, as Barry's temper becomes more infamous, his sweet feminine nickname progresses from the little maiden to the little tyrant. After just a few weeks in Cape Town, Barry's tyrannical temper explodes when he overhears a British captain claiming that he looks more like a woman than a man. Anger, pride, fear, and dread rip through his veins as his identity is threatened a second time. In a moment of unquenchable rage, Barry challenges the captain to a duel where he mercilessly shoots him squarely in the forehead. A shot like this should kill the captain instantly. It should disgrace Barry, releasing him from the army and possibly even revoke his medical license. But fortunately for both, the captain's helmet protects his forehead from the fatal shot, saving his own life and Barry's career. Despite Barry's short patience and angry temperament, the young surgeon's medical skills and knowledge are second to none. He introduces simple but revolutionary changes to the care provided by doctors, prioritizing ventilation, sanitation, reliable water systems, and even equal medical treatment for enslaved people and minority groups. These are improvements no other doctor has ever given any attention to. 
colleagues watch with a mixture of wonder and amusement as the small, terrifying surgeon marches into hospital rooms and flings open windows to circulate air. They laugh at how his high-pitched voice reaches a screeching frequency when he berates young nurses for failing to properly wash their hands. And the peculiar sight of the tiny, fierce man strutting around with his obedient poodle and pet goat causes whispers and stares of intrigue. But even with these strange eccentricities, he's highly regarded by everyone in Cape Town and before long receives a responsibility that will change his life forever and even threaten to reveal his dangerous disguise. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. In 1816, Cape Town is governed by the powerful, indulgent, and slightly controversial figure of Lord Somerset. He lives luxuriously, residing in a sprawling mansion equipped with a sparkling pool and ballroom. To all of his obedient subjects, he appears to be the epitome of English success, and he shows off his two young, beautiful daughters. However, since the tragic death of his beloved wife, Somerset has become disillusioned with the Western world and rejects any forms of Western medicine. So when his eldest daughter falls severely ill, Somerset dismisses all doctors. The only medical professional who can persuade him to let his daughter be treated is the young, passionate Dr. James Barry. Although records don't specify what illness she suffered from, Barry acts quickly and expertly in his treatment, nursing the girl back to strength and undoubtedly saving her young life. Somerset is overwhelmed by gratitude. Believing Barry to have performed some sort of medical miracle, he welcomes the young surgeon into his family and holds him in the esteem of a saint. Perhaps touched by such adoring attention from one of South Africa's most powerful figures and a man 18 years older than himself, Barry embraces the opportunity for friendship. And so the all-consuming yet problematic relationship that will shape both lives begins. Lord Somerset and Dr. Barry spend the next few years growing extremely close to one another. They're often spotted taking long walks together, enjoying expensive meals, planning trips for just the two of them. And in 1824, Barry leaves his army accommodation to move into Lord Somerset's private residence. As governor of the Cape and the recently promoted colonial medical inspector, the two make a powerful pair. But an influential friendship like this naturally invites intrigue, jealousy, and even conspiracy. And it isn't long before cruel rumors about the pair begin to circulate. In June of 1824, an anonymous local claims to have seen Lord Somerset buggering Dr. Barry. At a time when homosexuality is a crime punishable by death, the rumor shrouds the pair in scandal and threatens to destroy their prestigious reputations. It's unclear whether the rumor has any truth to it or not. 
it may simply be a cruel remark designed to take down the two most powerful, influential figures in the colony, with no evidence or substance behind it. However, there is the possibility that the rumor is based on truth. Somerset may be aware of Barry's biological sex, making the friendship between the two a romantic, sexual relationship. If this is the case, then Barry and Somerset may have truly been seen indiscreetly making love. But either way, whilst homosexuality remains a strict taboo and women are prohibited from practicing medicine, Barry and Somerset are locked in checkmate. All they can do is desperately deny the rumor. A court trial eventually finds both Somerset and Barry innocent of the crime, but the pair's friendship will never resume to its previous love and affection. Somerset eventually retreats from Cape Town to England in 1826, leaving behind a heartbroken Barry. In the long, hot, dry days that follow Somerset's reluctant departure, Barry solemnly laments in his journal after the man who was my more than father, my almost only friend. But as news of Somerset's new marriage in England and happy births of three more children reaches Cape Town, Barry will put all thoughts of his friend behind him and make a lasting name for himself in medical history. It's now June 25th, 1826. James Barry has been in Cape Town for 10 years and is just months away from his prestigious promotion to Surgeon of the Forces when he receives news of an emergency that will change his life. On this hot summer's night, he's called to a modest house in Cape Town where a young woman is struggling through the final stages of a difficult pregnancy. Labor has lasted a sweaty, painful 24 hours so far, and the stubborn baby is still refusing to be born. Barry knows what has to be done. He'll need to perform a cesarean section. But like every other 19th century surgeon across the globe, he's filled with dread and reluctance at this prospect. You see, C-sections are unimaginably dangerous during this time. With no antiseptics or anesthesia, the act of slicing into a woman's abdomen is considered little better than butchery. Surgeons have no resources with which to suture the gaping wounds on the mother's stomach, so it's often left open, inviting raging infections and severe blood loss. And although non-Western techniques have reportedly been successful, tales of banana wine, iron needles, root pastes, and herb mixtures don't appeal to many of the trained doctors or their patients. Whether performed in a London hospital or on the plains of South Africa, C-sections are notorious failures during this period. Mother and child have never both been known to survive such a horrific operation. But no matter how reluctant Barry is to perform the C-section, he knows he has no choice. Without it, neither the mother or child can survive. So having never attempted one in his life and only observed two fatal examples, he nervously extracts his surgical knife and cuts into the mother's skin. Painful, tense minutes of concentration follow as Barry meticulously operates. He obsessively washes his hands, changes instruments, and cleans every centimeter of the mother's severed abdomen. Eventually, 
the tiny baby is safely extracted from its mother's womb and placed in her arms. It's a healthy baby boy. But something's different this time. The mother isn't pale from blood loss or shivering from an uncontrollable infection. Is it possible that she survived? Hours, days, then weeks pass and both mother and baby boy grow stronger. Barry can celebrate. The C-section was successful. It's Britain's first ever cesarean section where both mother and baby have lived and Barry's esteemed place in medical history is secured. The mother's gratitude to her heroic surgeon is eternal, and she shows her thanks by calling her son James Barry. It's an honored name that will pass down through the family and eventually reach South Africa's highest governmental office in 1924, when its prime minister is none other than James Barry Herzog. But who knows whether this name would have gone on to carry such respect and admiration throughout South Africa if they had known that Barry was in fact a woman. In the years following James Barry's revolutionary cesarean operation, he travels widely throughout the British Empire with the army. He treats patients in Mauritius, Jamaica, the island of St. Helena, and the Leeward and Windward Islands of the West Indies. Wherever Barry travels, groundbreaking medical improvements follow as he encourages practice that no man or woman has ever before implemented. He continues to promote good ventilation, strict hygiene, as well as treating members of minority communities, the poor, widows, lepers, and even enslaved people, no matter how much bitter opposition it brings. Perhaps having grown up as a girl in poverty, Barry feels a certain empathy with the minorities who suffer on the sidelines as he once did. Although Barry frequently receives promotions and showers of praise, it would be a mistake to presume he finds his job easy. Whilst performing duties overseas, he's exposed to violent outbreaks of cholera, incurable yellow fever, and a whole host of nasty tropical diseases. And, of course, this high mortality rate is not Barry's only concern. Each day, he must bind his breasts, fill his sagging shirt with shoulder pads, step into three-inch heeled boots, and walk, talk, and act like a man. It's a lifestyle only for the ambitious and extraordinarily brave. Although Barry's talent and wisdom are second to none in the British Army, his rebelliously eccentric reputation continues to throw him into dangerous waters. He openly argues with fellow doctors, reprimands colleagues, bursts into fits of rage, and in 1829, deliberately breaks orders by abandoning his post on St. Helena and traveling to England for the worryingly ill Lord Charles Somerset. Barry is able to save Somerset from death in 1829, but his dear friend will live for just three more years. The man presumed to be Barry's lover, loyal keeper of his explosive secret and alleged one true friend, passes away in 1832, leaving Barry once again heartbroken. However, 
the small, fierce surgeon will have little time to grieve as his return to St. Helena brings a challenge like no other he's faced yet. It's now 1845, and Dr. James Barry holds the esteemed position of Principal Medical Officer for the British Army following his exemplary work on medical management. But despite his glittering medals, coveted titles, and godlike medical skills, Barry is quickly torn down from immortality when he's struck with yellow fever while serving in Trinidad. The raging fever reduces the fierce surgeon to a shivering, sweating mess teetering on the knife-thin edge between life and death. As Barry dizzily slips in and out of consciousness, his head spinning and guts wrenching, his blurry mind focuses on just one thing. The imperative need to keep his biological sex a secret. He hides his frail, shaking body away in a cramped room where he tosses and turns alone for two days, terrified that any treatment will reveal his true identity. But Barry is a well-known surgeon on the island by now, and it isn't long until people start to look for him. So, after 48 hours of suffering alone, a small group of nurses find him shivering on a dirty bed, his yellow body drowning in sweat. Being in no position to refuse their treatment, Barry reluctantly allows the nurses to cleanse his body and bring him back to health. It would be a mistake, however, to believe that the truth of his sex remains a secret during his illness. Even the most basic, non-intrusive examinations will reveal Barry's female anatomy, and the nurses in Trinidad surely discover that their senior surgeon is a woman. But surprisingly, they do nothing with Barry's secret. Perhaps he strikes some sort of monetary agreement with them, or maybe they don't feel his sex is really any of their business. Whatever the reason, Barry's secret remains unspoken and his identity protected. The date is now 1855. British doctors hurriedly treat wounded soldiers in Constantinople, Turkey, as the Crimean War ruthlessly rages on. Scutari, the British base hospital, is seriously struggling to keep up with the heavy demands of war. Patients lie sprawled on stretchers, drenched in their own excrement. Rodents and bugs scuttle noisily through hallways. Supplies of bandages run worryingly low and necessities like water are even being rationed. Sitting precariously on top of a local cesspool, the hospital has become a disgusting hotspot for infections. <laughs> to the horror and humiliation of doctors, more patients are dying from the unstoppable spread of infectious diseases than from the battle injuries. Perhaps to help curb this global embarrassment for British medicine, Two highly esteemed and talented professionals have been brought to Scutari, Dr. James Barry and Florence Nightingale. But even though Barry and Nightingale are joined in their plight to improve the overall conditions of hospitals, a certain incident prevents the two from ever becoming friends. It's a warm spring morning in Constantinople and Barry sits outside Scutari on a towering gray horse. Close to him are his faithful servant, pet poodle and goat, and surrounding this circle of eccentricity are rows of British medical staff. 
Barry holds his audience in his strict command, perhaps giving them instructions for the day ahead as the warm sun beats ferociously down his neck. But his concentration is suddenly distracted when a nurse hurries out of Scutari to join the meeting. It's Florence Nightingale. Barry is appalled at her appearance. Whilst his pale skin is covered by a thick overcoat with collars crawling up his neck and a tall, rigid hat adding a few inches to his tiny frame, Nightingale's head is covered only by a thin cotton cap. Barry stares dramatically up at the scorching sun and quickly down at Nightingale before bursting into an explosive fit of rage. He cannot believe that a senior nurse, an esteemed member of the British Army Hospitals, could be foolish enough to wear just a thin cap as protection against the hot Turkish sun. As he harshly berates the young Nightingale for her apparent stupidity, she makes up her mind that he's the most hardened brute she's ever encountered. Although Barry's outburst in Constantinople is in keeping with his tyrannical reputation, there is a possibility that he was fueled by something other than bad temperament. You see, Florence Nightingale is a woman revolutionizing medicine. Even though her gender ensures she'll never rise to the same ranks as Barry, she's already made a name for herself as the beloved Angel of Crimea. She's implemented measures not dissimilar to Barry's own improvements, making rigorous sanitation checks mandatory for both patients and doctors, separating beds to improve ventilation, and regularly cleaning hospital instruments and clothing. While Nightingale has overseen these developments wearing a dress, using her own name, living her real life, Barry has been forced to make his own changes trapped in the disguise of a man. It's certainly possible that Barry feels some level of resentment and jealousy towards Nightingale because of her freedom to be a woman. But for the esteemed surgeon, this freedom to reveal his own sex will arrive much sooner than he ever anticipated. 1857, Canada. James Barry is now one of the most senior doctors in the British Army. He's recently been promoted to Inspector General of all hospitals and is widely regarded as the most accomplished surgeon in the whole of the British Empire. Although his feminine appearance has continued to monger gossip, one officer told his friends that they'd have to be mad to take Barry for a man. It hasn't curbed his success. Barry's continued his noble endeavors to improve the lives of everyone he treats, from army officers to suffering widows and has been awarded promotion after promotion. But despite his achievements and senior rank, Barry's favor with the British Army is quickly diminishing. Whilst they tolerated his rebellious attitude and short temper when he was a young man rising through their ranks, these qualities are tiresome and obstructive now that he's approaching his 70s. He's asked to honorably retire from his duties in 1858 and, after the expected tempest of backlash, Barry agrees and leaves Canada for England in 1859. 50 years since hatching the dangerous plan to dress as a man and study medicine, Barry has completed a monumental career as Britain's first female surgeon, albeit in disguise. Barry returns to England in 1859 and moves into a residence in London, but it's not known how he spends his retirement. Does he continue living the life of Dr. James Barry, 
visiting old hospital colleagues, publishing medical journals, wearing heeled boots, shirts, and pants? Or does he finally lift the mask of masculinity he's been wearing since he was just 18 years old? These are questions we may never know the answer to, as Barry falls ill with dysentery during the heat wave of 1865. As the renowned surgeon lays dying, he leaves strict instructions to his maids and nurses, insisting that his body will be left alone in death, fully clothed and exposed to no examinations. Clearly, Barry intends to carry his secret with him to the grave. But of course, the words of a dead man, no matter how senior his rank, have little authority over the power of curiosity. So when Barry eventually passes away in July 1865, his body is of course thoroughly examined. The post-mortem examination triggers the damning discovery of his sex that Barry surely knew was inevitable, forever enveloping his once respected name in a scandal. London, July, 1865. News of Barry's nationwide deception engulfs the city of London in hot gossip and instantly infiltrates every corner of the British Empire. It's all anyone wants to talk about, and everyone has their own opinion. Government officials bombard the Royal College of Surgeons, desperate journalists harass alleged friends of Barry, the British Army shamefully closes off all documentation relating to him, and Charles Dickens even writes an article based on the scandal. With hundreds of different stories being whispered, printed, read, and spread, no one knows what to believe. Then, just one month after his death, a junior colleague of Barry's from Canada publishes a story in the Medical Times titled, The Reputed Female Army Surgeon. His words influence hundreds, as he writes. There can be no doubt among those who knew him that his real physical condition was that of a male in whom sexual development had been arrested about the sixth month of fetal life. The real marvel is that a being of a frame so feeble should have attained the highest rank in the medical department. The opinion that Barry was in fact a hermaphrodite, someone possessing both male and female reproductive organs, Gaines popularity throughout the 19th century as fellow doctors claim that they too believe Barry to have been an imperfectly developed man. This opinion's popularity may stem from the desperate need to uphold medicine as a male-only profession. By insisting that, despite obvious female anatomy, Barry was physically and biologically male. Institutions are able to keep women out of medical school and continue their mantra that medicine is a skill only a man can master. But whilst the view that Barry was a hermaphrodite satisfies some, many consider it to be nonsense. In their eyes, Barry was simply a woman dressed as a man purely to become a doctor. The discovery of female anatomy on Barry's body is, for them, a long-awaited explanation to the hundreds of burning questions they held about the renowned surgeon. Questions such as his behavior around Lord Somerset, his absence of a wife, the close relationship he shared with his male servant, not to mention his delicate physical appearance and high-pitched voice. The incredible story of Dr. James Barry becomes widely known throughout the British Empire following his death, 
as it begins to deconstruct the archaic prejudice that prohibits women from studying medicine. Barry has shown the world that a woman can not only practice high-level medicine, but can rise to its most senior ranks, bring about revolutionary changes, perform life-saving operations, all whilst living in the harsh, fierce environments of the exotic British colonies. Barry's unprecedented success opens the door just a crack for future ambitious women to follow. And follow they do. In 1865, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson becomes Britain's first female to gain a medical license. 11 years later, the British government passes a medical act which allows all individuals to practice medicine, regardless of their gender. And in the years that follow, hundreds of women challenge the stigma of medicine as they boldly join their male counterparts and infiltrate the hospitals of Britain. The date is now 2014, 207 years after Barry sent his application to the University of Edinburgh, and almost 150 years since the secret of his sex was discovered. Throughout Britain, medicine is a respected career enjoyed by both men and women. In fact, female medical students now outnumber men as they make up over 50% of the student body and account for 48% of all doctors. It's an astronomical improvement from the breast-binding days of the 19th century. And in April of 2014, the Royal College of Surgeons sets a groundbreaking precedent when it appoints its first-ever female president. But if Dr. James Barry hadn't bravely followed dreams that were centuries ahead of his time, who knows how far away these improvements may still be. Barry was not only a talented surgeon and revolutionary doctor, but a courageous and selfless advocate for women's rights throughout the globe. As more young girls and women embark on medical careers, his childhood dream of welcoming women into medicine lives on. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet the man known as D.B. Cooper and the many people who claimed his legend as their own. In 1971, a mysterious man hijacked a plane, parachuting out with almost a quarter of a million dollars. Hardly any trace of him was ever found. What followed was one of the biggest manhunts in FBI history. It stretched over decades, had almost a thousand suspects, and left the whole nation wondering, who is D.B. Cooper? Could a series of deathbed confessions finally lead to the answer? Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.